Chapter Four, Part One, of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume One, by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four, Land, Part One. Beyond this flood of frozen continent lies dark and wild, beat with perpetual storms of whirlwind and dire hail, which on firm land thaws not, but gathers heap and ruin seams of ancient pile all else deep snow and ice. Milton, Paradise Lost, Volume 2 They say it's going to blow like hell. Go and look at the glass. Thus Titus Oates quietly to me a few hours before we left the pack. I went and looked at the barograph, and it made me feel seasick. Within a few hours I was sick, very sick, but we newcomers to the Antarctic had yet to learn that we knew nothing about its barometer. Nothing very terrible happened after all. When I got up to the bridge for the morning watch, we were in open water, and it was blowing fresh. It freshened all day, and by the evening it was blowing a southerly, with a short choppy north sea swell, and very warm. By four a.m. the next morning there was a big sea running, and the dogs and ponies were having a bad time. Rennick had the morning watch these days, and I was his humble midshipman. At 5.45 we sighted what we thought was a berg on the port bow. About three minutes later Rennick said, "'There's a bit of a pack,' and I went below and reported to Evans. It was very thick with driving snow and also foggy, and before Evans got up to the bridge we were quite near the pack, and amongst bits which had floated from it, one of which must have been our berg. We took in the headsails as quickly as possible, these being the only sails set, and nosed along dead slow to leeward under steam alone.' Gradually we could see either pack or the blink of it all along our port and starboard beam, while gradually we felt our way down a big patch of open water. There was quite a meeting on the bridge, and it was decided to get well in, and lie in open water under lee of the pack till the gale blew itself out. Under ordinary circumstances the safe course would have been to go about and stand to the east, but in our case we must risk trouble to get smoother water for the ponies. We passed a stream of ice over which the sea was breaking heavily, and one realised the danger of being amongst loose flows in such a sea. But soon we came to a compacter body of flows, and running behind this we were agreeably surprised to find comparatively smooth water. We ran on for a bit, and then stopped and lay to. All that day we lay behind that pack, steaming slowly to leeward every now and then, as the ice drifted down upon us. Towards night it began to clear. It was New Year's Eve. I turned in, thinking to wake in 1911, but I had not been long asleep when I found Atkinson at my side. "'Have you seen the land?' he said. "'Wrap your blankets round you, and go and see.' And when I got upon deck I could see nothing for a while. Then he said, "'All the highlights are snow lit up by the sun.' And there they were, the most glorious peaks appearing, as it were like satin above the clouds the only white in a dark horizon, the first glimpse of Antarctic land, Sabine and the great mountains of the Admiralty Range. They were a hundred and ten miles away, but icy mountains high on mountain piled seemed to the shivering sailor from afar, shapeless and white an atmosphere of cloud. And, truth to tell, I went back to my warm bunk. At midnight a rowdy mob, ringing the new year in with the dinner-bell, burst into our nursery, I expected to be hauled out, but got off with a dig in the ribs from Birdie Bowers. 
In brilliant sunshine we coasted down Victoria Land. Tonight it is absolutely calm, with glorious bright sunshine. Several people were sunning themselves at eleven o'clock, sitting on deck and reading. At eight-thirty on Monday night, January 2nd, we sighted Erebus, a hundred and fifteen miles away. The next morning most of us were on the yards furling sail. We were heading for Cape Crozier. The northern face of Ross Island was open to our fascinated gaze, and away to the east stretched the barrier face until it disappeared below the horizon. Adelie penguins and killer whales were abundant in the water through which we steamed. I have seen Fuji, the most dainty and graceful of all mountains, and also Kinchinjunga. Only Michelangelo, among men, could have conceived such grandeur, but give me Erebus for my friend. Whoever made Erebus knew all the charm of horizontal lines, and the lines of Erebus are for the most part nearer the horizontal than the vertical, and so he is the most restful mountain in the world, and I was glad when I knew that our hut would lie at his feet, and always there floated from his crater the lazy banner of his cloud of steam. Now we had reached the barrier face some five miles east of the point at which it joins the basalt cliffs of Cape Crozier. We could see the great pressure waves which had proved such an obstacle to travellers from the discovery to the Emperor Penguin Rookery. The knoll was clear, but the summit of Mount Terror was in the clouds. As for the barrier, we seemed to have known it all our lives. It was so exactly like what we had imagined it to be, and seen in the pictures and photographs. Scott had a whaler launched, and we pulled in under the cliffs. There was considerable swell. We were to examine the possibilities of landing, but the swell was so heavy in its break among the floating blocks of ice along the actual beach and ice foot that a landing was out of the question. We should have broken up the boat and have all been in the water together, but I assure you it was tantalising to me, for there, about six feet above us, on a small dirty piece of the old bay ice, about ten feet square, one living emperor penguin chick was standing disconsolately stranded, and close by stood one faithful old emperor parent asleep. This young emperor was still in the down, a most interesting fact in the bird's life history at which we had rightly guessed, but which no one had actually observed before. It was in a stage never yet seen or collected, for the wings were already quite clean of down and feathered as in the adult, also a line down the breast was shed of down and part of the head. This bird would have been a treasure to me, but we could not risk life for it, so it had to remain where it was. It was a curious fact that with as much clean ice to live on as they could have wished for, these destitute derelicts of a flourishing colony, now gone north to sea on floating bay ice, should have preferred to remain standing on the only piece of bay ice left, a piece about ten feet square, and now pressed up six feet above water level, evidently wondering why it was so long in starting north with a general exodus which must have taken place just a month ago. The whole incident was most interesting, and full of suggestion as to the slow working of the brain of these queer people. Another point was most weird to see, that on the underside of this very dirty piece of sea ice, which was about two feet thick, and which hung over the water as a sort of cave, we could see the legs and lower halves of dead emperor chicks hanging through, and even in one place a dead adult. I hope to make a picture of the whole quaint incident, for it was a corner crammed full of imperial history in the light of what we already knew, and it would otherwise have been about as unintelligible as a group of animate or inanimate nature could possibly have been. As it is, 
it throws more light on the life history of this strangely primitive bird. We were joking in the boat as we rowed under these cliffs, and saying it would be a short-lived amusement to see the overhanging cliff part company and fall on us, so we were glad to find that we were rowing back to the ship, and already two hundred or three hundred yards away from the place and in open water, when there was a noise like cracking thunder, and a huge plunge into the sea, and a smother of rock-dust like the smoke of an explosion, and we realised that the very thing had happened which we had just been talking about. Altogether it was a very exciting row, for before we got on board we had the pleasure of seeing the ship shoved in so close to these cliffs by a belt of heavy pack-ice, that to us it appeared a toss-up whether she got out again, or got forced in against the rocks. She had no time or room to turn, and got clear by backing out through the belt of pack stern first, getting heavy bumps under the counter and on the rudder as she did so, for the ice was heavy and the swell considerable. Westward of Cape Crozier the sides of Mount Terror sloped down to the sea, forming a possible landing-place in calm weather. Here there is a large Adelie penguin rookery in summer, and it was here that the discovery left a record of her movements tied to a post to guide the relieving ship the following year. It was the return of a sledge-party which tried to reach this record from the barrier that led to Vince's terrible death. As we coasted along we could see this post quite plainly, looking as new as the day it was erected, and we know now that there is communication with the barrier behind, while this rookery itself is free from the blizzards which sweep out to sea by Cape Crozier. It was therefore an excellent place to winter, and it was a considerable disappointment to find that it was impossible to land. This was the first sight we had of a rookery of the little Adélie penguin. Hundreds of thousands of birds dotted the shore, and there were many thousands in the sea round the ship. As we came to know these rookeries better, we came to look upon these quaint creatures more as familiar friends than as casual acquaintances. Whatever a penguin does has individuality, and he lays bare his whole life for all to see. He cannot fly away, and because he is quaint in all that he does, but still more because he is fighting against bigger odds than any other bird, and fighting always with the most gallant pluck, he comes to be considered as something apart from the ordinary bird, sometimes solemn, sometimes humorous, enterprising, chivalrous, cheeky, and always, unless you are driving a dog-team, a welcome and in some ways an almost human friend. The alternative landing-place to Cape Crozier was somewhere in McMurdo Sound, the essential thing being that we should have access to and from the barrier, such communication having to be by sea-ice, since the land is for the most part impassable. As we steamed from Cape Crozier to Cape Bird, the northwestern extremity of Ross Island, we carried out a detailed running survey. When we neared Cape Bird and Beaufort Island, we could see that there was much pack in the mouth of the strait. By keeping close in to the land, we avoided the worst of the trouble, and, as we rounded Cape Bird, we came in sight of the old, well-remembered landmarks, Mount Discovery and the Western Mountains, seen dimly through a hazy atmosphere. It was good to see them again, and perhaps, after all, we are better this side of the island. It gives one a homely feeling to see such a familiar scene. Right round from Cape Crozier to Cape Royds, the coast is cold and forbidding, and for the most part heavily crevassed. West of Cape Bird are some small penguin rookeries, and high upon the ice slopes could be seen some grey granite boulders. These are erratics, brought by ice from the western mountains, and are evidence of a warmer past when the barrier rose some two thousand feet higher than it does now, 
and stretched many hundreds of miles farther out to sea. But now the Antarctic is becoming colder. The deposition of snow is therefore farther north, and the formation of ice correspondingly less. Many watched all night as this new world unfolded itself, cape by cape and mountain by mountain. We pushed through some heavy flows, and— At six a.m. on January 4th, we came through the last of the straight pack some three miles north of Cape Royds. We steered for the Cape, fully expecting to find the edge of the pack ice ranging westward from it. To our astonishment, we ran on past the Cape, with clear water, or thin sludge ice, on all sides of us. Past Cape Royds, past Cape Barn, past the glacier on the south side, and finally round and past Inaccessible Island, a good two miles south of Cape Royds. The Cape itself was cut off from the south. We could have gone farther, but the last sludge ice seemed to be increasing in thickness, and there was no wintering spot to aim for but Cape Armitage. I have never seen the ice of the Sound in such a condition, or the land so free from snow. Taking these facts in conjunction with the exceptional warmth of the air, I came to the conclusion that it had been an exceptionally warm summer. At this point it was evident that we had a considerable choice of wintering spots. We could have gone to either of the small islands, to the mainland, the glacier Tongue, or pretty well anywhere except Hut Point. My main wish was to choose a place that could not be easily cut off from the barrier, and my eye fell on a cape which we used to call the Skewery, a little behind us. It was separated from the old discovery quarters by two deep bays on either side of the glacier Tongue, and I thought that these bays would remain frozen until late in the season, and that when they froze over again the ice would soon become firm. I called a council and put these propositions. To push on to the glacier Tongue and winter there, to push west to the tombstone ice, and to make our way to an inviting spot to the northward of the cape we used to call the Skewery, I favoured the latter course, and on a discussion we found it obviously the best, so we turned back close around Inaccessible Island, and steered for the fast ice off the cape at full speed. After piercing a small fringe of thin ice at the edge of the fast flow, the ship's stem struck heavily on hard bay ice about a mile and a half from the shore. Here was the road to the cape, and a solid wharf on which to land our stores. We made fast with ice anchors. Scott, Wilson, and Evans walked away over the sea ice, but were soon back. They reported an excellent site for a hut on a shelving beach on the northern side of the cape before us, which was henceforth called Cape Evans, after our second-in-command. Landing was to begin forthwith. First came the two big motor sledges, which took up so much of our deck space. In spite of the hundreds of tons of sea-water which had washed over and about them, they came out of their big crates looking as fresh and clean as if they had been packed on the previous day. They were running that same afternoon. We had a horse-box for the ponies, which came next, but it wanted all Oates's skill and persuasion to get them into it. All seventeen of them were soon on the flow, rolling and kicking with joy, and thence they were led across to the beach, where they were carefully picketed to a rope run over a snow-slope, where they could not eat sand. Shackleton lost four out of eight ponies within a month of his arrival. His ponies were picketed on rubbly ground at Cape Royds, and ate the sand for the salt flavour it possessed. The fourth pony died from eating shavings in which chemicals had been packed. This does not mean that they were hungry, merely that these Manchurian ponies eat the first thing that comes in their way, whether it be a bit of sugar or a bit of Erebus. 
Meanwhile the dog-teams were running like loads between the ship and the shore. "'The great trouble with them has been due to the fatuous conduct of the penguins. Groups of these have been constantly leaping on to our flow. From the moment of landing on their feet their whole attitude expressed devouring curiosity and a pig-headed disregard for their own safety. They waddle forward, poking their heads to and fro in their usually absurd way, in spite of a string of howling dogs straining to get at them. Hello, they seem to say, here's a game. What do all you ridiculous things want? And they come a few steps nearer. The dogs make a rush as far as their harnesses or leashes allow. The penguins are not daunted in the least, but their ruffs go up, and they squawk with semblance of anger, for all the world as though they were rebutting a rude stranger. Their attitude might be imagined to convey— "'Oh, that's the sort of animal you are. "'Well, you've come to the wrong place. "'We aren't going to be bluffed and bounced by you. "'And then the final fatal steps forward are taken, "'and they come within reach. "'There is a spring, a squawk, a horrid red patch on the snow, "'and the incident is closed.' "'Everything had to be sledged nearly a mile and a half across the sea-ice, "'but at midnight, after seventeen hours' continuous work, "'the position was most satisfactory. "'The large amount of timber which went to make the hut was mostly landed.' The ponies and dogs were sleeping in the sun on shore. A large green tent housed the hut-builders, and the site for the hut was levelled. "'Such weather in such a place comes nearer to satisfying my ideal of perfection than any condition I have ever experienced. The warm glow of the sun, with the keen invigorating cold of the air, forms a combination which is inexpressibly health-giving and satisfying to me, whilst the golden light on this wonderful scene of mountain and ice— satisfies every claim of scenic magnificence. No words of mine can convey the impressiveness of the wonderful panorama displayed to our eyes. It's splendid to see, at last, the effect of all the months of preparation and organisation. There is much snoring about me as I write, 2 a.m., from men tired after a hard day's work, and preparing for such another to-morrow. I must also sleep, for I have had none for forty-eight hours, but it should be to dream happily. Getting to bed about midnight and turning out at five a.m., we kept it up day after day. Petrol, paraffin, pony food, dog food, sledges and sledging gear, hut furniture, provisions of all kinds, both for life at the hut and for sledging, coal, scientific instruments and gear, carbide, medical stores, clothing. I do not know how many times we sledged over that sea ice, but I do know that we were landed as regards all essentials in six days. Nothing like it has been done before, nothing so expeditious and complete. And words cannot express the splendid way in which every one works. The two motors, the two dog-teams, man-hauling parties, and, as they were passed for work by Oates, the ponies, all took part in this transport. As usual, Bowers knew just where everything was, and where it was to go, and he was most ably seconded on the ship by Rennick and Bruce. Both man-hauling parties and pony leaders commonly did ten journeys a day, a distance of over thirty miles. The ponies themselves did one to three or four journeys, as they were considered fit. Generally speaking, the transport seemed satisfactory, but it soon became clear that sea ice was very hard on the motor-sledge runners. The motor-sledges are working well, but not very well. The small difficulties— will be got over, but I rather fear they will never draw the loads we expect of them. Still, they promise to be a help, and are a lively and attractive feature of our present scene as they drone along over the flow. At a little distance, without silences, 
they sound exactly like threshing machines. The ponies were the real problem. It was to be expected that they would be helpless and exhausted after their long and trying voyage. Not a bit of it. They were soon rolling about, biting one another, kicking one another, and anyone else, with the best will in the world. After two days' rest on shore, twelve of them were thought fit to do one journey, on which they pulled loads varying from seven hundred to a thousand pounds, with ease on the hard sea-ice surface. But it was soon clear that these ponies were an uneven lot. There were the steady workers, like Punch and Nobby, there were one or two definitely weak ponies, like Blossom, Bleacher, and Jehu, and there were one or two strong but rather impossible beasts. One of these was soon known as Weary Willie. His outward appearance belied him, for he looked like a pony. A brief acquaintance soon convinced me that he was without doubt a cross between a pig and a mule. He was obviously a strong beast, and since he always went as slowly as possible, and stopped as often as possible, it was most difficult to form any opinion as to what load he was really able to draw. Consequently, I am afraid that there is little doubt that he was generally overloaded, until that grim day on the barrier when he was set upon by a dog-team. It was his final collapse at the end of the depot journey which caused Scott to stay behind when we went out on the sea-ice, but of that I shall speak again. Twice only have I ever seen Weary Willie trot. We were leading the ponies now, as always, with halters and without bits. Consequently our control was limited, especially on ice, but doubtless the ponies' comfort was increased, especially in cold weather, when a metal bit would have been difficult if not impossible. On this occasion he and I had just arrived at the ship, after a trudge in which I seemed to be pulling both Weary and the sledge. Just then a motor backfired, and we started back across that flow, at a pace which surprised Weary even more than myself, for he fell over the sledge, himself and me, and for days I felt like a big black bruise. The second occasion on which he got a move on was during the depot journey, when Gran on ski tried to lead him. Christopher and Hackenschmidt were impossible ponies. Christopher, as we shall see, died on the barrier a year after this, fighting almost to the last. Hackenschmidt, so-called from his vicious habit of using both fore and hind legs in attacking those who came near him, led an even more lurid life, but had a more peaceful end. Whether Oates could have tamed him I do not know. He would have done it if it were possible, for his management of horses was wonderful. But in any case Hackenschmidt sickened at the hut while we were absent on the depot journey, for no cause which could be ascertained, gradually became too weak to stand, and was finally put out of his misery. There was a breathless minute when Hackenschmidt, with a sledge attached to him, went galloping over the hills and boulders. Below him, all unconscious of his impending fate, was Ponting, adjusting a large camera with his usual accuracy. Both survived. There were runaways innumerable, and all kinds of falls. But these ponies, could tumble about unharmed in a way which would cause an English horse to lie up for a week. There is no doubt that the bumping of the sledges close at the heels of the animals is the root of the evil. There were two adventures during this first week of landing stores which might well have had a more disastrous conclusion. The first of these was the adventure of Ponting and the Killer Whales. I was a little late on the scene this morning, and thereby witnessed a most extraordinary scene. Some six or seven killer whales, old and young, were skirting the fast flow edge ahead of the ship. They seemed excited and dived rapidly, almost touching the flow. As we watched, they suddenly appeared astern, raising their snouts out of the water. I had heard weird stories of these beasts, but had never associated serious danger with them. Close to the water's edge, 
lay the wire stern rope of the ship, and our two Eskimo dogs were tethered to this. I did not think of connecting the movement of the whales with this fact, and seeing them so close, I shouted to Ponting, who was standing abreast of the ship. He seized his camera, and ran towards the flow edge, to get a close picture of the beasts, which had momentarily disappeared. The next moment, the whole flow under him and the dogs heaved up and split into fragments. One could hear the booming noise as the whales rose under the ice and struck it with their backs. Whale after whale rose under the ice, setting it rocking fiercely. Luckily Ponting kept his feet and was able to fly to security. By an extraordinary chance also, the splits had been made around and between the dogs, so that neither of them fell into the water. Then it was clear that the whales shared our astonishment, for one after another their huge hideous heads shot vertically into the air through the cracks which they had made. As they reared them to a height of six or eight feet, it was possible to see their tawny head markings, their small glistening eyes, and their terrible array of teeth, by far the largest and most terrifying in the world. There cannot be a doubt that they looked up to see what had happened to Ponting and the dogs. The latter were horribly frightened and strained to their chains, whining. The head of one killer must certainly have been within five feet of one of the dogs. After this, whether they thought the game insignificant or whether they missed Ponting is uncertain, but the terrifying creatures passed on to other hunting grounds, and we were able to rescue the dogs, and what was even more important, our petrol, five or six tons of which was waiting on a piece of ice which was not split away from the main mass. Of course, we have known well that killer whales continually skirt the edge of the floes, and that they would undoubtedly snap up any one of us who was unfortunate enough to fall into the water. But the facts that they could display such deliberate cunning, that they were able to break ice of such thickness, at least two and a half feet, and that they could act in unison, were a revelation to us. It is clear that they are endowed with a singular intelligence, and in future we shall treat that intelligence with every respect we were to be hunted by these killer whales again. End of chapter 4, part 1